0: Every time I was able to get a loan, I was doing drugs. I've been to prison four times, twice in the state, twice in the Fed. I was doing all this crazy stuff, cooking drugs and just staying high.
1: God called me from a prison cell. I was a homeless drug addict, and my hope was found in a needle.
0: Pregnant, homeless, um, living out of my van.
1: You know, it wasn't Freeway that saved me, it wasn't John's Troop that saved me, but God uses Freeway in such a mighty way as a
0: tool to reach these people.
1: There's not a community or a county in America that doesn't have a drug problem, and the, the church has the answer, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well welcome to One Broken Life, Uh, my name is John Stroop, I'm with Freeway Ministries uh, World Headquarters, we're here in Springfield, Missouri, Uh, I have my guest with me today, a very good friend of mine, Casey Merrick, Hello. and uh, we're going to explore the lives of broken people. Uh, We hear many times about the negative impact that drugs, uh, drug abuse, uh, and crime have on our community, the prisons are full and there's children. Uh, without their parents being raised by different people, but you don't hear about the positive impact a radically changed, uh, someone who's been radically changed from a drug addiction can make in, in, in the community through the power of Jesus Christ. And um, and so that's really what this is about. This is about broken lives, broken people who have been redeemed by Jesus. And I'm reminded of uh, Psalms 51. In Psalms 51, I think it's 17. Yeah, 17, I've got it wrote down here. But it says... Uh, the, 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 uh, the sacrifices of God are, are a broken spirit and, and a contrite heart. It says a broken spirit, a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. And so uh, I thank God for my past that I was broken. I'm not proud of it. Don't glamorize it. Um, I'm not giving the devil you know airtime by glorifying it. but if it wasn't for my breaking point, I wouldn't be where I am today as a preacher of the gospel. And I know that's the same for you, Casey. I'm excited to have you on yeah. Broken Lives Today, One Broken Life. And uh, I hope that those listening on Spotify will share, Apple Podcasts will share, those on YouTube will share, and, and just uh, share those stories with people so they can see and hear uh, modern-day miracles of what God is doing in the ministry. Um, Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 says, uh, "...the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel." And, and so that's the thing here we're doing today is sharing stories of, of the things which have happened to us, right, um, in our lives. And, and I've asked Casey to come on with us. Casey is uh, employed by Freeway Ministries. I've known him for close to 10 years. I know his family very well. Uh, the people who will be on our, our podcast are people who are trusted, people who have, have integrity, people who uh, they're, they're, they're most likely not going to be relapsing next week, even though you never know, right? Uh, I'm one mistake away from, from relapsing today, and so are you, right? We're, right. we're all weak and frail, <clears throat> and we need to be depending on grace. And so, Casey, let's talk about your big mess. That's a great big message today, amen. Okay. Uh, let people know you. They see your face here at Freeway. We have our outreaches on Saturdays. You're invested in discipling men. Uh, but, but I don't think a lot of people know about your past, your okay. childhood, uh, where you come from. So will you just give me, some, give me some of your background, our people who are listening. What was life like growing up, Casey?
0: Yeah. Well, the first uh, six years of my life, uh, we grew up in <laughs> Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, my dad actually passed away before I was one year old. Um, he was a drug addict, um, just couldn't get his life right and um, ended up driving his motorcycle into a tree one day. Uh, my mother was um, the type of person that liked those kind of relationships, fast and um, extreme, lots of um, abuse and um, just drug addiction. And she was so, after my dad passed, she would have just um, various men in the house and um, biker types. That was her type of um, man. And so it was just real uncertain, you know, from one day to the next. Um, if my mom was even going to be there at all, she would go on binges for days at a time. Uh, I did have a, um, some family that lived in the area that would stop in and check on us and, um, and get us out of that situation from time to time, make sure that we we're eating and going to school. But, um, but it just really kind of shaped my view on relationships from an early age, that it's not something dependable or steady or, or something that you could even open up about, but really learn to live a really guarded life from an early age. So you say us, you're speaking of your siblings. Me and my brother, um, Gene, who was three years older than me, he really kind of took care of us. He would make, like instant oatmeal or um, um, macaroni and cheese, whatever was easy to make sure that, you know that we could eat. My, do- my sister was one year older than me, Dawn. So you're the baby. I'm the baby. Yeah. So how old were you guys being left alone? Um, you- yeah, so I can remember it from... You know, probably around age four or five. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it was pretty much a lifestyle, yeah.
1: Yeah, so your mom used to leave you guys alone. Uh, you were you grew up in a, uh, I, I, you know, there's a scripture in Isaiah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everything we do is going to be based off scripture. Like, that's our worldview here, we biblical worldview. And um, he says, Woe to you who, who take uh, light for darkness and darkness for light, yeah, who, who say evil is good and good is evil and and that's the background many of us come from you know you had that twisted view of of the world um and so you guys were being trained up at a young age you know to be guarded and Mm -hmm. and uh and so your mom you know i i've never met your mom uh you know i've known you 10 years close to 10 years um i've never seen her Mm -hmm. so what i know i know your history a little bit better than most people so let's talk about, you know, so you're growing up, you're being abandoned, your mom's running off, you guys are feral, right? Mm-hmm. You're just wild, yes fending for yourselves, taking care of each other. Um, and so then what happened?
0: Um, well, at the age of um, six, um, that's when my grandparents got involved with the situation. They knew a little bit about what was going on in the house, but um, they didn't know the extent <laughs> of it. Um, but whenever I was six and my sister was seven, uh, we would – I remember, like, hitting bongs, drinking beer at that age. But we got into my mom's acid and um, took quite a bit of it and, and overdosed on it. And So I remember um, my sister was just screaming from the next room, and she was having a real horrific um, hallucination that demons were coming out of the ground to capture her. And uh, I was trying to go rescue her from that, but, um, but it's just like the, the, the carpet turned into a, a sea of vomit and I couldn't get to her, and then I blacked out. So following that, uh, that's when my grandparents got us out of that situation, and they moved us to Donovan, Missouri, over towards the Boot Hill, and it was a much more structured <coughs> environment, but we were, like you said, feral. We were wild. I remember hearing from my Sunday school teacher years later that we would just, like, be running around, stripping our clothes off, running around the tables at church, and just just out of control. Yeah.
1: Well, if you – I don't know how much acid – you know, I've done acid – before mm-hmm. and so I cannot imagine my little girl or my ch- your you know your ba- your kids getting into acid I right. mean you you are it's a miracle that you weren't in a mental institution for the rest of your life right. yeah. so you know you've been through a lot a young age and um, and so to know you today it's a it's, you know we both know that is a miracle ha- right. have you uh, talked to your mom
0: we saw her my sister actually wanted to track her down. It was my senior year in high school. We hadn't seen her since we were, um, she actually didn't show up for court whenever we were getting, um, my grandparents were adopting us. And um, so really never expected to see her again, but my sister was somehow able to track her down in um, Red Banks, Mississippi, working at a BP. And we just showed up down there to surprise her and show her, I d- was just recently um, had my first daughter, Hannah, and my sister had her first son, Alex, and um, and I don't know what we were expecting, but she didn't, she wasn't interested, you know, she spent a little bit of time, but it was just, we could tell that she would moved on. You know. Yeah, and then that view, that forms your view of
1: women, mm-hmm. that forms your view of relationships, that forms your view of motherhood, I mean, it, you know, everything. Yeah. and so that's a, uh, a big deal I yeah. mean that is a it's a miracle to know you today and where you're at right now knowing that past you know uh, being on staff of freeway and being a preacher yeah. so when did
0: your drug use start? well <laughs> that was really by um, just family pressure you know when I was really young but you know my brother, as soon as we moved to Donovan, he was a little bit older. I'd say within a couple of years, he started using, and then he started um, sharing his drugs with me. Probably by age you know, 12, 13, I was drinking marijuana. Yeah.
1: Okay, so you're drinking, you're using marijuana. You're uh, barely a teenager. Mm-hmm. We have two boys, and they're both close to the same age, 13, 14. So you're about our kid's age right now, and you're drinking, yeah. and you're getting high, and mm-hmm. your grandparents' home. Mm-hmm. okay yeah. and so then yeah, it progressed we both know that right so mm-hmm. let's talk about the progression like when did you become a drug addict When yeah. it, you know that lifestyle
0: i'd say definitely by you know high school probably my um sophomore years when it was an addiction a daily thing just getting up smoking marijuana in the morning um and just drinking um, every weekend. I didn't drink every night, but I drank every weekend and smoke marijuana daily. Yeah.
1: So, and then the meth game. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that.
0: Meth was about age um, seventeen, and it was um, it was kind of recreational at first. But um, but it, it really it wasn't until after I, I graduated and I was um, uh, a couple probably a year after I graduated that it became more more regular than that.
1: And you are living with your grandma at that time?
0: Not whenever I got on. Well, I would use it occasionally when I was living with them, but we moved out. Me and my wife, um, my first wife, Lizzie, got married our senior year. We went down to the courthouse, eloped, um, and um, thought that it was going to fix everything, but um, it just progressively continued to increase. But, um, yeah, we were actually staying in my grandparents' house, but they weren't there. So you meet this woman, Mm -hmm. Lizzie. Mm-hmm. Where'd you meet her at? High school. High yeah. school sweetheart.
1: Yep. Okay. And was she in, using drugs and drinking too?
0: She was, yeah. Meth? Um, not so much. I mean, she was definitely drinking marijuana. Okay. Like yeah.
1: So she's drinking, she's using. She's smoking weed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys fall in love, quote unquote, That's you true. know, um, <laughs> a worldly love, a, mm-hmm. a drug addict relationship type thing, and immaturity. He's involved very much in that. And so then you... You guys get you guys get married. You elope. You got your own place to live. Mm-hmm. Then what happened?
0: Oh, it was it was really never a pleasant time. Once we got married, it was just constant fighting, arguing. She had um, a, a father that was not physically abusive, but verbally, and um, he was he was he was addicted to pain pa- meds. He had a bad at- back injury um probably in his late 30s and just was on pharmaceutical medication after that so she grew up around that and she had a twisted worldview also relationships had no idea how to have it so we were just basically two kids that um didn't know how to take care of ourselves much less a kid or anything else but I'd say my wife was probably much better parent than I was she made sure that our uh, Hannah was you know fed and and Clean and everything like that. And I was more interested in just going out and spending time with my friends and and just having fun. Yeah, Yeah, so you you mentioned
1: Hannah. Mm -hmm. So we have a daughter now. Yes. Hannah's born. How old Mm -hmm. was she? How old were you when that
0: happened? We were both 17. It's kind of a family, um, almost a curse. Yeah, my mom, my grandma, her mom, all 17, all born out of wedlock.
1: Okay. Correct. So here you are. uh, You got a little, you got a daughter now, Hannah. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then you get another, you have another baby, right? Mm-hmm, four Sarah. years later, Sarah. So now you're the father, you're a husband, you've got a wife, you've got two children. Mm-hmm. They're in the same type of environment that you were in when you was a kid, correct?
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah almost identical. You know, we, we, we kind of started the process of moving, starting over, moving to a new location, hoping things would work out, trying to refocus on our marriage. But it didn't take me long to find friends like friends I had before, people like me, and um, and then I would begin that cycle of um, just uh, sneaking off, not coming back, being gone for days, it's, it's just really a mirror image of what my mom was doing, you know, and it took me a long time to realize that, and um, and then she would threaten to leave and all these things, and sometimes she would leave, and then I would drop everything, get clean just long enough to get her back in the house, and then I felt like my life was manageable, and um, and really never owned anything any responsibility for what I was doing. I was just just trying to get away with what I could and still not be alone. So the walls came crashing down on you. Yes. So here you
1: are. How old were your kids whenever you – how many times you have been in prison, Casey? Twice. 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 Yeah. So tell us about the first time.
0: The first time, um, it was – After Lizzie finally divorced me and I could tell that, you know, she wasn't just playing games this time because usually we would destroy each other's stuff and it would be a blowout. But this time she didn't destroy anything. She was just sad. And I could tell that she was just done. And um, for me, I just let go. I didn't have any restraints now. I didn't have anything to work towards that I knew of. And so I just started diving off deep into addiction, meth constantly, hallucinogens, whatever I could get my hands on and as much as I could and to support that I would start robbing you know my employers my family first time I went to prison was for robbing my uncle wiped out his um tool shed just taking them to Arkansas selling them and just getting drugs yeah
1: and so you go to prison Mm -hmm. and then what
0: and then I get in prison, and I come up with this great plan and how things are going to be different. I convinced my family, who I robbed, that um, things were going to be different. Just um, give me another chance, and I'd share my plan with them. And I actually thought that I was going to change. I thought that things were going to work out this time. Mm. So you go to prison. You've got this plan. You're going to go back to your, your uh, family's house,
1: mm-hmm. and it's going to be better this time because mm-hmm. you're going to do it. You're going to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and – and then you get out the first time.
0: Yeah. What happened when you got out? Yeah, the first time I got out, I went to my uncle's, uh, not the uncle I robbed, but another uncle, and I just, out in the country with some cows, and just um, worked some cows out there. Um, I actually thought that my girlfriend was going to be my home plan, but I realized when she Um, denied my home plan that she had another boyfriend. There you go. So that was a nice awakening there. Yeah, welcome to (laughs) uh,
1: the reality of prison
0: love. There we go. Yeah. And so, and I worked hard. You know, I did everything (laughs) that I possibly could to do it right out of my own strength. And um, I did really well for a while. You know, got involved with church, was in um, uh, recovery ministry. And um, it was looking good, but I just... My heart hadn't changed, you know. It was just a matter of time when I got disappointed, discouraged, and I just slipped back into that cycle again. So
1: then you're in, a, you're you're back on drugs. You're out of prison. How long did you make it?
0: Maybe six months. Six months. Maybe. You're worse than before. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I just picked up right where it was, and and instead of just buying meth, now I'm making meth, and um, I'm you know working. Um, trying to get my daughters on the weekend because I'm still in my hometown. I was just um, a little further out in the country there. And so I'm trying to get them on the weekends to try to feel like I'm being a good father, to feel like I'm just like whenever I could convince my wife to come back, like my m- life was manageable as long as they were in the picture. But really, I mean, I was so emotionally detached from them and so just um, focused on myself and my desires that I, they couldn't even be a part of my life. I remember – them like coming to the stairs i would always spend a lot of time in the basement because that's where i would make my meth you know and and i remember them looking around the corner and just wanted to be a part of my life but um i would make them leave i would have them on the weekend to feel like i was in control but they couldn't even get close to me
1: yeah and so how old were they then
0: um seven and three eight and four somewhere around there so lizzie would bring them and drop them off Mm-hmm. And then you get them on the weekend at your
1: uncle's. Is yes. That where you were at?
0: Well, I was at that time. I was back in my grandparents' house again. Okay. Yeah. So
1: the generational enablers, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So they're there to bail you out. They're there to. Yeah. They're they, they think they're doing a good thing to help yeah. you, and you're they're cooking meth good. in the basement. Right. Okay. And so the Sarah and Hannah uh, come visit you, and you're in the they're in the basement. You cooking meth, using meth, so you're high, mm-hmm. and then the walls come down again on you. what happened
0: yeah well actually at this time i was wrong on the dates they were that age when i went to prison the first time they were about um eight and 12 this time okay and so this time i mean i wasn't happy in my addiction i i was i was my own victim um just like everybody else but and uh, and i didn't want to continue in that lifestyle i knew that i was lying Uh, i knew i was making promises that i couldn't keep And um, just a few short weeks before I actually got arrested the second time, um, God began to move in my life and in my heart. Um, One situation was where my daughter Hannah came home from from school, and she came up there on the weekend to spend time, and she talked about how she had um, given her life to Christ. And um, I remember thinking that this should be the happiest day of my life as a father, but I was just completely emotionally hollow. I didn't feel anything at all, and I remember just thinking how terrible that was, that that I can't even celebrate this day with my daughter, and I just kind of walked away from that situation, just aware of how far I was, how far off I was gone. And then probably a a couple weeks after that, my youngest daughter, Sarah, I think she was was, um, 11 at the time, had drawn a picture, you know, and it was me passed out on the couch and her sitting at the foot of the couch, and it said, spending time with dad, And that was, um, just showed me that that's the only time she could get close to me or be around me was when I was passed out. It was just a a picture, a reflection of my mom, you know, growing up. And I remember thinking that day that nothing good enough or nothing bad enough was ever going to change me. And just a couple days after that, I was just sitting there making meth in that same area and just weeping, just weeping because I knew that I was going to die like this that my daughters were not going to ever be a part of my life, that nothing was ever going to change. And I was tired of even praying those foxhole prayers because I knew that it was meaningless. I knew that I was not going to follow through on it. I knew that I was just lying to God, lying to myself. I had no intentions or no power to even change. And I was just totally despaired, and I just began to weep, you know, bitter, um, empty prayers or um, tears. And I honestly think it was like it talks about in Romans chapter 8, how the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf with um, utterings that we can't even announce, praying for things we don't even know to pray for. I think that just that pit of despair that I knew that I was hopeless, I think God worked through that in a way because he sent the sheriff's department Amen. a couple of days later to, to get me out of a situation I couldn't get myself out of.
1: Yeah, and we pray for people to be apprehended by the sheriff's department. Amen. That's right. There's no high speed chases in prison. There's no accident, no no shootings in prison. You don't, you know, kill somebody drunk driving in prison. And so that's a great place to sober up. You can't quit prison. You know, you can't walk out of that jail cell and say, I'm done with recovery. You know, it doesn't work that way. So you, you get sent to prison. Tell me about your salvation, Casey. How, when did you come Mm -hmm. to that broken? So you're that one broken life, right? You're, you're a mess. You're broken. You're you're coming to yourself. Now you go to prison again.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and it was um, while I was waiting to go to prison, actually, in county jail in um, Ripley County. It's um, it's like a 10 by 10 concrete cell with the old cast iron bar- bars. Um, it's old school. You you don't leave. You go to court maybe once a month, once every three months. That's about it. And you're in there the rest of the time. You don't see the outside? No sunlight. Hell yeah, yeah. No. I've been there. Nope when they opened the door to bring your food in outside of the bars it almost felt like the room doubled just by getting a little bit of light from the hallway in there but yeah. that was it yeah oh tv with the antenna on it well they would roll the tv in once a week oh nice and you could watch whatever movies they had okay. on the rack if you were good so we got to watch it every once in a while so. but um there's a gentleman named bob healy he was about 80 years old that would he came into that jail you know several times it just struck me as odd because he wasn't like us, I didn't think. He, he'd never drank, never smoked and he'd never been to jail and, um, but he um, brought a Bible in there and he would just pray with us and just love on us you know and share time and I knew that I didn't know him anything. He didn't know me anything. So it was just strange. but he was telling his testimony one day about how he was um, walking home. From school, and he um, went in his neighbor's yard and taken an, some fruit from his neighbor's tree and began to eat it. And he realized that he was stealing. He was twelve years old at the time, and, and he said he threw it down and ran home and he hid at his house out of shame and guilt, and um and he realized that he was a sinner, and I think that led to his um re- to his salvation. But I remember thinking that s- story was just silly. First of all, because you know it it wasn't near as you know terrible as my story but at the same time he, he described my entire life just running and hiding out of shame and guilt and um and i knew that the answer for him was going to be the same answer for me so i took that bible he handed me through those jail bars and i began to read it and study it and for the first time i wasn't doing it because i was asked to or i was doing it because i knew that there was something in there that was for me and so the, the salvation didn't come that day, but it was probably a, a month or so after that, just studying scripture in Matthew twelve thirty, where it says, He who is not with me is against me. If you don't gather with me, you scatter abroad. And it was as though Jesus was talking to me as an individual, saying, Casey, you've spent your whole life pushing people away from me, your daughters, your cousins, your friends, everybody. And... Um, And it crushed me for the first time in my life. I really think had that conviction that just crushed me to the core. And I was broken. And and I was repentant. And I didn't have anything to bring to the table. I was stripped down to absolutely nothing. I had nothing to offer God except myself. And I just, you know, committed. I was like, if you'll just have me, if you'll just take me, I'll spend the rest of my life pulling people to you instead. And, And I believe that was the day I was saved. Praise Amen. the Lord. Amen.
1: Amen. That's beautiful, man. Amen. And uh, and so now you got you you have a salvation. Yeah. And you're in prison. Uh, where are you gonna go? Mm-hmm. Where's the next step for Casey Merrick?
0: Yeah. That was a great question, and I didn't have an answer to it, and um, I, I didn't have a game plan. I just knew I couldn't go back home. That's the only thing I was sure of. I knew that if I went back, I would start that cycle over again of dependency, dependency on my family, and that would just open the door to everything else. And so I was um, blessed um, to go to OCC, one-year um, institutional treatment. I really deserved um, what I was charged with, which was manufacturing where kid children reside, which was you know up to 20 years. Um, but God blessed me to ten- send me to Fordland, right outside of Springfield, and there's people from Springfield coming in those jail prison gates every day, leading Bible studies or prayer groups or um, celebrate recovery. And, um, and I really just had a simple prayer because I didn't have a plan at all. I just prayed, God, just send me somewhere where I can know you, where I can grow in you and where I can serve you. That was, that was really my prayer, that's right. all I had. And, um, and he showed me that these people that were coming in, they were coming from a community that cared about people like me. So then I just began to shift my interest towards going to Springfield. I started filling out applications. Of course, Freeway wasn't, uh, it didn't have men's housing at the time. I think Freeway started about two weeks before I actually got out of prison, a couple weeks. I got out in September 2011. And so um, so I just got an answer back from one of the um, programs in Springfield, and, I, and then that's where I went.
1: Awesome. Yeah. So you start over in Springfield. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have your faith in Jesus, probably a Bible. Mm-hmm what else what what's 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 happening now so you you're you're uh you're saved you're showing up in springfield you've got a home plan Mm -hmm. there's people listening or watching i don't think they fully get the uh what an inmate has to go through or an offender depending on what you look at it or convict i don't know but uh, what someone who comes from a criminal mentality, they come out of prison and now they're trying to start their over, life mm-hmm. over in a community. You're in a program because you don't have anywhere safe to go. So what What? what happens now,
0: that yeah, transition? I was scared to death. You know, um, I was going to a place where I didn't know not one person, nobody. Um, I'm from a small community, a town of 1700 to, to Springfield. I was overwhelmed because... Nothing really moves in prison that fast, you know. And so I remember walking downtown Springfield and an ambulance went by with the sirens on and I just froze because it was just too much, too much, too fast for me. Um, the halfway house that I home planned to was promising to make build me into a disciple of Jesus Christ, to pour into me spiritually, help me, you know, with all the other areas of my life. And I was really kind of disenchanted by the reality of what happened there. Um, I'm thank God for that period of my life and for that door being open, but I didn't get a lot of training in how to deal with life's issues there. And so I really, I was almost beginning to despair. I remember walking around Springfield and I could feel like needles in my head because I was so stressed out because I couldn't get a job. Nobody would hire me. I couldn't get a job at McDonald's. It's not like it is today. They'll pay you to go to McDonald's today, but (sighs) then I couldn't talk them into it because I knew that I'd robbed every employer I'd ever had. I knew that I was a long shot. Um, I knew I was a new creation in Jesus Christ, but I had a lot of baggage that I was bringing with me, and it was weighing me down. Um, And so I would just be like raking yards for people from my AA group or, you know, or just people that in the recovery community that would, um, help me out. And, um, and I was just, you know, I thought I was going back to prison honestly, cause okay. I, I wasn't, I was in my Bible. I was studying it every morning, but I didn't know how to move forward and it was getting desperate for me.
1: Okay. So obviously we, you came to freeway at one point in time, right? Yeah. And so, uh, so now you've, you've got these, this strange relationship with your ex-wife, your two little girls who aren't so little anymore. Mm-hmm. You've got the grandma and the grandpa. Uh, your old li- life is, is, is passed away and behold all things are new but literally like when I came to Springfield, I'm not from here either. It was like I was parachuted in China. Mm-hmm. I didn't know the language, I didn't know the people, I didn't know the landscape, you know All I knew was Jesus. And I knew I needed a job. I didn't have no money. didn't have no family. Um, So here you are. And so you end up getting plugged into freeway. Explain how that happened.
0: Yeah, well, that's where things began to change. And I began to see a little bit of hope in the situation. Because I was going to everything that was recovery related. I just needed to be around people that were, you know, like-minded in recovery. And about the third week, I was at the... Way House that I was at, or the program. Um, that's when you showed up, yeah. And the uh, Assemblies of God van, the old blue van, and um, and I actually thought that I was going to um, uh, a different ministry altogether because I knew that there was another one at Assemblies Church, and so I thought that's where I was going. So I hopped in there, and um, went to uh, this gym. Um, it was still at the gym by Broadway Baptist Church, up off of Broadway Street, and um, and didn't even realize where I was or why I was there, but, um, but I began to um, notice something very quickly when I was there. I noticed that there was men that weren't just um, living a good life that I could never achieve, but they were like coming alongside other men and, and just helping them, investing in them and walking through them. I remember somebody would ask, you know, ask me, I think it was Rick Lechner, you know, how are, how are you doing? I was like, I'm doing fine, I'm doing good, because that's the right answer, right? It's a proper answer. He's like, no, how are you really doing? And I was like, well, I'm struggling, you know. And he's like, well, here we we, we, we walk through life with you. You know, we, we meet you where you're at, and we walk through life with you. And, I, and there's a sincerity there and a genuineness. And then I began to just watch, because I would study people, I would watch that this is sincere. It wasn't just made up. It wasn't for some other reason. It wasn't about money or just, you know, popularity. It was truly about investing in people that um, had given up on themselves, even, And so that's when it really began to change for me, and I just continued in that ministry. Uh, Slowly the other things I was attending began to fall off, and and I just continued growing in the opportunities that Freeway was presenting as it grew.
1: Yeah. So there was a, and I'm just looking over at the clock just to make sure that this is good. Um, So as we continued and you began to be faithful, you got plugged into the church. Mm -hmm. So now you're in the church, and I remember you like, winning so many people uh to the lord just bringing them from your recovery home. Uh you were the guy who they would, you know, like kind of like when the Jehovah's Witness show up at the door, mm-hmm. you know, there here comes Casey, he's yeah. going to invite us to church <laughs> again, you know. And so uh here you are, you're 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 coming, you're you're being faithful, you're showing up. So what happened next? Like what's the next step for you in that process uh, kind of the van you got the van mm-hmm. now you're now you're driving the van yeah you're driving the purple van now mm-hmm. okay yeah and and so that transition began to happen where you started really being in ministry i think before you realized what ministry was yeah
0: you're exactly right and um and that's a you know a story in itself you know i, I was attending and and you guys were doing so much for us and um and I don't think you guys realized how much y'all were making a difference in my life and others. So um, one day I just asked, I was like, what can I do to help you guys more? You know, and that's when you threw me the keys of that van that you picked me up in and, and said, just keep bringing people. And so that was my ministry. Um, like you said, I didn't realize it at the time. I just continued inviting people. And yeah, there was people that say, okay, I'll, I'll be there Saturday and I go look for them and they'd be out in the bushes hiding from me. And they'd come back and tell me a few weeks later. Um, but that's really what I learned, uh, you know, uh, some hard lessons like, you know, no is a godly answer. I couldn't do everything everybody wanted just because they got in the van. I had to discern what was helpful and what was right, and I had one purpose, and that was bringing them to a place where they could know who Jesus Christ was and, and just be around the people of God who would love them and walk through life with them. And also, I learned just the, the harsh lesson of rejection, whenever you got somebody that's like your best friend sitting beside you in the passenger seat helping you with this and riding along, and then all of a sudden they're not there, and you're alone in the driver's seat. And just learning to kind of continue in that again and again because many people were in that passenger seat and um, for just a short period of time. And so just learning to kind of navigate through those hardships.
1: Yeah, and, and here's the, all, the truth at the end of the day, brother, is that the fruit is there even if you don't see it. Mm. You know, it's there. There's fruit in that. Like, you know, we don't get to see the fruit. You know, Dewey Houston, who's a missionary and invested in me, he died in 2012. You know, we just started the second freeway on Friday night. And I don't know what his reward's like right now, Hmm. but I believe it's going to be great. And, uh, you know, he invested in me, and he didn't get to see the fruit. And so uh, here you are. um, You're driving the van. You're, you're you're picking people up. Um, you're plugged into the local church. Uh, and before we stop this episode, I just want to talk to you. I want you to just share a little bit about you you meeting your wife. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Okay. So you meet Mrs. Wright. Mm-hmm. Not Mrs. Wright now. <laughs> Mrs. Wright.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I was just so blind and oblivious like, I I didn't, I never really had a great game plan, (laughs) you know, I've kind of blundered through things and God's helped me through all of it in amazing ways. But she had, um, her family had started bringing her to Broadway because her and her husband were, had toxic relationship, a lot of abuse. Um, She had alcohol, um, drug issues, and um, she was finally letting her, Parents kind of help her with that, and then they said, "Well, you need to go to Freeway." And so she came to a, one of the Freeway um, Bible Fellowship classes before church over in the gym, and um, and she came in with a black eye, you know. And and so at first, our first impression was, you know, I just knew that she was from a rough past, you know. And um and and we were just standing kind of face to face, and you know, and I almost I felt bad for her and I, and I was embarrassed for, her, but I didn't even realize. Know, what was there because it took some time i finally got to the point in my life where i wasn't trying to find um a significant other i i, I finally i think really kind of came to the place where i was really willing to commit myself to serving others in ministry and um and letting that kind of satisfy that part of me but but then whenever i heard her praying one day it was whenever um crossway baptist was about to open up and they had 40 days of prayer and I heard her praying with Mike A that had taken her in. He's one of the co-founders, her and her family to kind of, as she was going through the process of starting her life over to disciple her and mentor her. I just heard her praying for um, her church, for her kids, for her life and, um, and I realized that that's what you look for in a, in a wife is, is somebody that's faithful to God, somebody that trusts God, somebody that's going to be obedient to what God says and then it just clicked to me that that's what you look for, and then she'll be faithful in all those things. Like you said earlier, you know, I had um, abandonment issues, I had trust issues. I did not trust women. I sabotage every relationship because I knew it was going to end anyway in my mind. And um, and for the first time, it clicked that that's what you look for. That's what you can depend on is somebody that trusts the Lord. And you know, an added bonus is that she was a beautiful woman. You know, she's a she's a wise woman. I go to her for counsel and everything. But that was you know the number one quality was just her faithfulness that I just, um, it changed it for me.
1: Yeah. And so you, we say every freeway we don't say it as much as we used to because everybody knows so much now because we said so much, but, you know, if you come here looking for a relationship, you know, don't come here looking for a relationship. Don't yeah. come here to hook up. Come here to hook up with Jesus. Tell Tyrone yeah. you're calling back, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, don't, uh, don't do that. And so that's, you came not looking. Uh, you ended up um, meeting this woman, mm-hmm. and uh, then you came to m- pretty much Mike and Julie, wasn't it? And yeah. asked him as her father figure.
0: I did because that was I, I saw him as her spiritual father, and so I asked him if it would even be okay for us to you know to entertain the idea because I wanted his approval. Like I said, I didn't trust myself for the first time in my life, and I wanted it to be something that God would bless. We were actually serving in, together at um, a treatment center. You know, so I was getting to know her and spending some time around her and getting to know her kids some, but um, but I wanted his blessing on it.
1: Yeah, and so what did he say?
0: He said, absolutely. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And I remember getting in your business at one time, mm-hmm. you know, when you was at the treatment center, you lived in one of the recovery apartments, and I remember talking to you and saying, hey, you don't need to have her over at your house. You know, and you got mad at me. and uh, That's true. I don't know if you remember that or not. I do. But uh, I had to address you on that one time, and, and then you thanked me. You've always done that well. Um, so then you guys get married, and, and you have a blended family. Mm-hmm. God bless you. Yeah. You know, And so now you have two teenagers. Mm-hmm. Well, no, they're not teenagers. They're teenagers now, but they're – how old were Blade and Alyssa? Five and
0: six when we got married.
1: So Jessica has two children. Uh, bev- you know, You inherited them, right, mm-hmm. from her abusive relationship. She right. was with a man who beat her, mm-hmm. gang-affiliated. Um, you know, there was a time when he showed up at Freewood with a gun. Correct. And uh, you guys just happened not to be there. hmm And, uh, you know, we, he got wrestled out of the building, pulled the gun out, and uh, threatened to shoot the place up. And actually, I was right there in the front of the gym when that happened, and I seen him wrestling with Mikey Laughlin and Mike A., and he actually hit Mike A in the face and they got to fighting and he pulled that gun out. We don't know why he was there. Still don't know. And I actually went and visited him in jail and mm-hmm. talked to him. Uh, but, um, he drove off and that's kind of the, the, where she came from. You know, I say she was scraped off a park bench cause mm-hmm. she was, you know, yeah. Mike A and Juliet rescued her yeah. and, uh, she was, she was beaten. And, uh, Left many times, and so now you guys have this relationship. She's got these two kids, and they don't know. You know, I remember Mike used to have to hold, hold, the, hold Bladen down on mm-hmm. the ground, and he w- in this house, you know, to restrain him. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you're, you're now you're married, mm-hmm. and you've got these two children, and then you've got your two older girls. So y- you know you're blended together. Yeah. Uh, we've we've we're way over time, and so we're gonna have to wrap this up for now, and we'll we'll uh, we'll jump into part two, and we'll mm-hmm. explore Casey Merrick's broken life. This is a John with Freeway Ministries, One Broken Life. We're so glad you joined us. Hope you come back again and catch us for part two.